Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, she might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for calling your people to worship, uh, calling both the young and the old, um, parents and children, those who are sure of their faith, those who are unsure of their faith, uh, unsure what faith even means. Thank you for calling all of us. Uh, Use this time now to bless us through your word. Uh, Use this vision. Use these uh, images in the scriptures uh, to point our attention to what you want us to pay attention to, and let this be a beneficial, fruitful, even life-giving time for all those who hear. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We're back in our series in the book of Revelation. Um, We're actually entering the second half of the book, and for those of you who are just tuning in, this is a difficult book. It's a very challenging book because it's got tons of symbols and allusions uh, to the Old Testament. All right, so it's natural uh, for you to feel like it's a, it's a difficult book to, to grasp. Uh, but to make it somewhat easier to apply, um, today I'm going to try to spend the, the first half of the sermon explaining the meaning of the vision and then the, spend the second half explaining the relevance of it and, and get pretty practical there. Um, and by the way, it is a good idea to revisit uh, old sermons in the Revelation series. It's, it's all on our website because I mean, hearing one sermon on any topic is always insufficient. So feel free to do that with Revelation um, as well. For today, uh, we're going to unpack uh, first the meaning and the relevance. And I want you to think about it this way. Think about uh, going to a museum and checking out a painting. And uh, usually the painting is, I mean, something that you spend most of the time looking at. But then underneath the painting, there's a lot of text that comments on the painting. That gives you uh, context, background, commentary for kind of modern day relevance and things like that. And if the painting has something to do with the Renaissance and you're like, I don't know what the Renaissance is, it makes you go research the Renaissance period and get a fuller picture of what that period's about, right? Um, That's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to look at the painting, look at the vision, look at the signs, and then the the following sort of caption that goes, hey, look at the rest of the Bible also and get some commentary on what this picture actually is about, all right? Uh, We'll get to all of that. All right, so let's go ahead and unpack the meaning of the vision first. All right, let's, let's go one verse at a time. Let's start with verse 1. Verse 1 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Okay, who is this woman? Uh, it's kind of tempting to immediately interpret uh, this woman to be Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, because uh, later on the child who is born will rule the nations and sit on the throne of God. 
So that's clearly Jesus. But when you look at the fuller context, uh, we, we come to a different conclusion. The opening words of the vision, first of all, says, a great sign appeared. And that's a very explicit way of telling the readers, this is a vision. This is going to be a symbol. Uh, do not take this literally. This is a symbolic vision and a sign. Uh, and then it goes on to say, when you unpack the rest, this woman is clothed with a sun. You can't take that literally. Uh, with moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. Right? So when you look at that in the context of the Old Testament, right, you think back on Joseph's dream, the very well-known dream that Joseph had, where there are 12 stars, 11 stars bound to him, 12 including Joseph himself. The father of Jacob appeared as the sun, mother Rachel as the moon. And that's a direct parallel with what we have in verse 1, almost word for word. So who is the woman? It's all of Israel. It's, the, it's all the people of God. And then it says in verse 2 that she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And, and when you look at the Old Testament, you do see that before the Messiah comes from, is born out of Israel, there's a whole lot of suffering that Israel goes through, a lot of pain and agony, right? From Egypt to the wilderness, being invaded and exiled back into the wilderness, in part because of their own sins, in part because of enemy nations. And it's interesting, in this vision, all of that suffering is symbolized in this woman crying out in labor, about to give birth. And, and that's interesting because of how that interprets the suffering of Israel. It interprets it as not meaningless, for one. Right? Uh, it's meaningful. It, it gives birth to something hopeful. And by the way, uh, that biblical view of suffering is, is the only way to really make any suffering meaningful in life. Uh, apart from God's control over suffering and what he, the hope that he grants those who are in suffering, apart from that, suffering is, or apart from God's picture, uh, it's part of natural selection. You're just part of this Darwinian jungle. It's nature. Live with it. That, that's the only way you can deal with suffering. Uh, whereas if, if you follow God's redemptive story, there's no such thing as meaningless suffering. And here we find Israel suffering, awaiting their true Savior, uh, crying out for a better priest, prophet, and king, uh, a role that no Israelite could play uh, for Israel. Uh, all suffering that they experienced in a sense were crying out for their true home, true promised land. And that what we have in the here and now, it's not enough. Right? So in a sense, the symbol of this woman crying out in agony is really a summary of the entire gospel message that says, uh, although Israel cannot save herself, out of her, by God's grace, will come a child who can save Israel. Uh, like the song says, like the Christmas song, Mary, did you know? Um, the woman delivering the child will herself be delivered by the child. Um, I thought that was a cool line to use. That's essentially what this is saying. So it's, it's important as Christians to, to understand that the gospel presents Jesus Christ to us as a singular solution to our problem of suffering in the here and now. Uh, the, the problem of, of evil and, and pain and suffering and death. Um, Israel had good kings. Uh, uh, they had the temple. They had armies. They had wealth. None of that sustained Israel. None of that ultimately saved Israel. And, and the whole point is, all of that only leads you to cry out for something better. Cry out in agony, 
for some someone who can truly save. And and that's essentially the, the gospel message for us. Uh, our only hope in life and death is Christ. And if we if we try to put our hope in a good career, uh, bodily health, uh, money, people's recognition, we will cry out in agony for more, uh, because only Christ can save. Um, did we in our own strength confine, like we were just singing? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Right? The point of the gospel is that you know, there is someone we can turn to who will actually satisfy. Um, and it's not anything in this world. When we turn to something or someone other than the man of God's own choosing, this child, we, we lose it all. We lose our grip on everything. So who is this woman? It's us. It's the people of God. It's Israel. It's true Israel, spiritual Israel. It's the church. It's the people of God. So the, this vision of the woman and the dragon is a vision about you and the dragon. It's a vision about you and your need of this child to deliver you. All right? There's that. The woman, the child. Who is this red dragon that appears in verse 3? Uh, it's someone that you and I are quite familiar with, at the same time very ignorant of. Uh, we know of him, but we really, really don't know him that well. And I'm referring, of course, to Satan. The red dragon is Satan. Let me ask you a question. How often do you think about Satan? Uh, if your answer is never, the Bible would say you're doing it wrong. Uh, as in, that's not a proper way to live the Christian life. If, if the devil is never on your mind. Uh, the Bible talks quite a bit about Satan uh, to warn you and equip you against him. And so to be ignorant of him, of what Scripture says about him, probably means you're succumbing to whatever he's doing to you. Uh, his schemes, his, his attacks, his strategies. If you're unaware of, unaware of all of it, uh, you're probably suffering from it. Now, on the other hand, if you think about Satan all the time, you're doing it wrong too, uh, because right, if, there's a, some, if there's some kind of strange obsession with, with Satan um, uh, or some kind of fear that, that transcends your fear of God, you're doing it wrong, because Scripture clearly talks about his defeat. But chances are most of us in this room fall under the first category of not thinking enough about it, right? He's never on our minds, right? Um, so let's work on that a bit today because, I mean, this vision is here for us to look at, right? God is in a sense saying, okay, look with me for a moment at this red dragon. Uh, and then read the, the caption that goes under the painting that points us to all the stuff in the Bible that also talks about this guy. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? Not people, human governments, politicians, or neighbors. But against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's your main battle, Paul says. 1 John 5.9 says the present world is under the control of the evil one, which is Satan. He says, this is your present darkness that you live in. This is your context. It's your world. Are you aware of this? Right. That, that this world, first of all, is a very dark place presently because there's a dark Lord who lords over it. 
and your main struggle in it is against, therefore, this enemy, but yet it's an enemy you can't even see. Is this how you narrate your your spiritual reality? Because that's how scripture describes it. Your enemy likes to crouch at the door and hide and, and, and pop out and get you when you get when you walk through the door, kind of like every zombie movie, right? They, they never check the corner. And when they think everything's fine, they walk through the door, that's when zombies pop out and get you. They're crouching at the door, ready to devour you, or like a prowling lion, ready to devour you. To live the fullest Christian life in, with the fullest Christian picture, you have to get this picture. Not just that there is this woman symbolizing God's people, this child symbolizing their Savior. There's a dragon in your picture, too. There's a red dragon, and that's the devil. If you don't have all three, you don't have a full Christian picture. So what I want to do is quickly show you what this vision shows us about Satan and then move on to its relevance for us. And again, like the caption would do under a painting, um, treat it as a commentary. And then look at some of the other stuff in Scripture that gives us helpful principles in how to resist the devil and how to cling to God uh, in the midst of our trials and battles against the devil. All right, first, verse 3. Behold, a, red, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And in verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Okay, let's pause there. Um, what are the seven heads, ten horns? Um, in, in the book of Daniel, there's a beast that appears with uh, ten horns. And uh, in both contexts, Daniel Revelation, the, the horn symbolizes strength and, and might. Uh, so this is here to tell you uh, Satan is powerful and he's more powerful than you. Uh, you have nothing against the devil. You will, you will never on your own defeat the devil. Don't even try it. Okay. Uh, you, you, have, you can't come against this thing that can sweep a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. Right? It's, to, it's to really describe its power to a point where you feel powerless against it. That's intentional, right? Um, ten horns, uh, longevity, right? vitality. Uh, it's hard to kill. It's almost like it's got ten lives, metaphorically speaking. Um, seven diadems, and that's a crown for royalty. And so more than just symbolizing brute strength, like Hulk, you know, just that's brute strength, right? He's just good at smashing stuff. Uh, the devil has royal power, meaning uh, he has a domain he, he knows how to control, and he has subjects he knows how to control as well. Okay. He has kingly control. He's destructive, but in a kingly sense, in a, in a, in a systemic sense, if you will. And that's what verse 4 is depicting. Um, a third of the stars does mean, right, it's limited, it's finite. It's not this infinite power to, to, to wreak havoc on everything, everywhere, all at once, um, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, right? It's limited, but still formidable. And then the rest of the verse says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now that's alluding to that time during Jesus' birth when Herod killed all the firstborn uh, around the same time, just to make sure you know, no prophecy, supposed prophecy about the Messiah will come true. So here we're getting a little behind the scenes of what was really going on when Herod uh, gave that uh, order to kill all the, the male uh, newborns, 
Satan was attempting behind the scenes to intervene, put a halt to God's rescue mission for, for the world by going after the child. Um, he, he fails, of course, because uh, God's plan will always prevail against Satan's plans. God is the Almighty, uh, even though Satan is mighty. God is the Almighty. So we read in verse 5, she does give birth to a male child, and he does rule all the nations with a rod of iron, uh, which is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, a messianic psalm pointing to the Messiah. It's quoted here intentionally to make sure you know this is talking about Jesus. And her child was then caught up to God and to his throne. And that's a very, like, super short summary of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, right? Uh, He was preserved by God, and not only that, he finished his mission, he returned to his throne. And that could have been it. That could have been the end of this vision, just to leave you with a a nice, pleasant thought about how Jesus, he finished it all, and now he's sitting on his throne. But he gives us this little uh, post-credit scene uh, that points us to, there's a sequel there. In verse 6, it says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. There are a few things that are meant by this. Uh, For one, the woman is in the wilderness now. Um, And wilderness represents trials and tribulations. Jesus said to his disciples, to to the church, in this world, you will have tribulation. Until the fullness of God's kingdom comes, we will... Only glimpse, glimpse, hope, redemption, restoration, healing, testimonies of salvation, but full restoration, the fullness of life where every sin, every death destroyed, every tear wiped away, that's not yet. That comes after this chapter that we're in. Uh, We're still very much in between the victory that Christ has won and and the kingdom of God that will finally come and consummate everything. We are living, I I like to say, we're living in the movie Saving Private Ryan. When the Allies landed on Normandy on D-Day, victory was secured. That was a decisive victory, right? Hitler's going down. The Nazis are going down. But until V-Day, until they officially surrender, right? uh, I mean, the whole movie is, after after that decisive victory, there's still a lot of bloodshed, aren't there, right? There's still a lot of uh, uh, fighting to do. That's us. Uh, Christ has won the decisive victory. Uh, but yet there's still a lot of battle lingering, remaining until he returns. Uh, the comfort, however, uh, is found in, the, in, in what it says next, uh, that she has a place prepared by God in the wilderness. Right? God provides green pastures for his sheep, as it says in Psalm 23. He's, he's made their path straight, even in the wilderness, as it says in Proverbs 3. Uh, there's a way for God's people to ultimately make it home, get through the wilderness, and reach the promised land. And, and that's through God, his help, his shepherding, his provision, his paving the way. Even, even in the presence of our enemies, God prepares a table for us, Psalm 23, 5. That's, that's the description of our life in the, in the here and now. Uh, and the, and the 1,260 days, we looked at that in, in the earlier chapters of Revelation. That number comes from the Old Testament. Uh, in Daniel, Elijah, it's used 
as a temporary season of suffering, even persecution of God's people. It's a finite number of days. It's not forever. Uh, your suffering will end. Uh, your, your trials will cease. They are not forever. You could argue that the number 1,260 is a number that symbolizes the entirety of every Christian life on this side of heaven. Now, um, we will get to this uh, more as we cover the rest of chapter 12 in the coming weeks, but what the dragon does is he continues to pursue the woman in the wilderness. Uh, he, he lost his chance at the child, so his mission now is to continue pursuing the woman, uh, God's people, in the wilderness. So even as he's been weakened and defeated officially by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection on behalf of us, Satan is still making his desperate final attempt in this final chapter of God's story to, to just make as much damage as he, can, he possibly can. Uh, I, I've been re-watching the extended version of The Lord of the Rings, and I, you can't watch that in one sitting, so I've been you know, watching it like a TV series. And I uh, got to the end of it just yesterday. And there's a scene where Gandalf battles the, uh, the monster, right, Balrog, uh, and he's actually known as a fire demon. Fire demon, right, with, that looks very much like a dragon, with horns on his head. So given that Tolkien was a Christian, I think he might have just gotten that from Revelation 12. But uh, Gandalf, right, says his famous line, you shall not pass, defeats the, the monster, and as, as, the, as a demon is falling down into the, the pit of shadows, the director does a really good job of kind of sustaining that moment for a little bit because you, you, you sigh a sigh of relief, like he's been defeated. But on his way down, what does he do? He, he uses his fiery whip and catches Gandalf by the ankle and drags him down with him, right? Guys, all that Satan is trying to do the church right now is just that. On his way down, trying to take as many with him as possible, all right? Um, he's defeated, but he's just trying to make as much damage on the way, on the way down. So he's still after the woman, you, the church, in the wilderness, in the here and now, in this already not yet phase of, of God's story. All right, what I hope that would do is just give you understanding of what this means. When you look at verses 1 through 6, all right, okay, so that's what this picture means. Now let's talk about its relevance, Okay. And I want to end on a rather practical note here. Uh, I'm going to give you right, the caption underneath the painting that explains the meaning of this and also pointing us to the other stuff in the Bible, other passages that point us to uh, Satan, his scheme, strategies, means of attacking God's people in the wilderness. And so that we can uh, learn better how to be victorious in our spiritual battle against the devil and better cling to God. Because scripture gives us all of that, thankfully. So I'll leave you quickly with five scriptural pointers or principles when it comes to uh, Satan, his attack on God's people, and how we can resist him and, and cling to God. Uh, one thing you have to understand about Satan is he does very subtly something that uh, seldom goes noticed, but he does it therefore very effectively. What he begins to do in God's people's lives 
more than anything else, is he makes God's word ring less true and therefore in time less relevant. It's how it all began. Did God really say, you shall not eat? No, he didn't really say that. And, and from there you go on to, what did he even say? Uh, you go from, did he really say? Maybe not. What did he even say? Uh, if you're wondering, how is Satan at work in this world today, I would not look to the Hollywood depictions. You know, uh, people crawling on walls and the head turning 360. Sorry for putting that image in your head. Uh, but that's kind of a common, right, way that Hollywood likes to depict demonic manifestations and stuff like that. Um, don't you think the devil's smarter than that? Because I think 99% of the people who see that kind of stuff would just run to church and start converting, uh, which would be counterproductive for the devil. What Scripture tells us devil, the devil likes to do more is to sow doubts in, in the believer's heart or anyone's heart about God's word until the point where it becomes irrelevant. And even when you read it and you try to meditate on it, you're like, I don't know why this matters to me. I would say the devil's doing a lot more work there than in the Hollywood movies. It's subtle. It's hard, to, it's hard to catch. But see if you can examine in your heart if there's any erosion in your trust in the word of God. In his word to be absolutely trustworthy. Or your recollection of his word even. If I were to ask you, tell me something right now from scripture that you're really holding on to and rejoicing in. And giving thanks for. And if you cannot give me one single verse, that's a problem. Um, so your relation to the God's word, check on that. That's number one, because he loves to get you, get the saints right there. That's the heart of it. Second, scripture also says, uh, Satan is a murderer and is filled with anger and hatred. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says of those who are just hot with anger towards him, you are children of your father, the devil. Anger and hatred are Satan's primary emotions. Uh, it would be wise of us then to really catch ourselves in the act of feeling anger and hate and realize these are demonic feelings. Uh, Ed Welch, the Christian counselor, says 98% of, Christ, uh, of a human anger is sinful anger, tends to be sinful anger. Even if you're reacting to something that's worth being angry about, our, our anger is imbalanced, unjustified, self-justifying, vengeful, bitter, unforgiving. 98% of the time, our anger is sinful anger. Meaning, 98% of the time, when we feel anger, if we, if we indulge in it, if we feed that monster, uh, we are accomplices, co-conspirators of, of the devil. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right? Don't, don't treat it like it's something you can just sleep on casually. Right? If you're the people of God, guard against this with everything you got. Um, third, Satan is crafty and he likes to hide. 
He likes to be unnoticed. So beware of the seasons in your life when everything seems to be going well. Uh, his style of warfare is guerrilla warfare. It's, it's hidden, it's secret, uh, it's unnoticed. It reminds me of the tale of the bloody knife. I don't know if you heard of that tale. Uh, in, order to, in ancient times, in order to trap and kill wolves, hunters would take a blood-soaked knife and they would stick it into a block of ice and then the, the blade would be showing. And the wolf would instinctively be drawn to the, the scent of the, the smell and start licking the blade. And over time, as the wolf itself is bleeding, he confuses. It confuses its own blood with the blood that was on the, on the blade and continues to lick on the blood until he bleeds to death. That was an ancient method of hunting down wolves. Uh, it, and that's the tale of the bloody knife. Uh, I would say that sort of drip, drip, drip effect is what Satan is going for. Again, if he comes out all dramatic and possessing people, it only makes you pray more and believe more. I, I've heard a lady walk out of a horror movie in the movie theater going, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Uh, it just makes you run to the Lord and, and turn to his mercy more. Uh, again, Satan's smarter than that. Right? And he's got a whole lot of experience. He's done this for thousands of years. Uh, he's going for the drip-drip effect. Beware of, therefore, your daily patterns and habits recurring little sins. Uh, pay attention to your daily emotional habits. Pay attention to recurring times of laziness throughout your day, recurring moments of short-temperedness. Pay attention to how easily you become irritated by something that isn't even sinful and how you react against a brother or sister because of that. That is the devil at work. That's nothing less than Satan tempting you, attacking you. You better believe that. Beware of those little moments that add up. Because he, he he's smart enough to use that strategy on you. Uh, a good question to ask, therefore, here is, um, what is right now my deepest sin problem that I must repent of? And perhaps even repent to my brothers and sisters for? Can you be specific? If you can you're probably alert to the Satan's schemes and, and his attacks. If you have no idea, uh, think about the bloody knife. Okay, you might be the wolf in that picture. Uh, fourth, take heart in this. Okay? I'm not saying all this is scary. I hope you're encouraged by this. The Bible's very clear on this. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, Right. Lord Sabbath, that's what that means. He is with you. He is on your side. The stronger man of God's own choosing, he cares for you, and he loves you, and he is with you. And what we need, therefore, is not knowledge about some okay, methods of exorcism, right? things to chant or pray when we see weird stuff. What we need more is knowledge an awareness of this God and his word. Most of all, you need a constant remembrance of Christ and him crucified for your sake. Cross which shows you how deeply problematic your sins are, but at the same time, how deeply loved you are and forgiven you are at the same time. And because 
That's the cross of the Almighty who is set out to forgive you. The, acu- the accusations coming from the Mighty One, who I can't stand, the Almighty wins against the Mighty. So there's nothing more important for you than to guard your heart and your mind in the power of God to save you, uh, His promises to sustain you and keep you. So don't take for granted ever uh, the, the habit of daily intaking the Word of God. Uh, don't take for granted the opportunity you have whenever you can gather with other brothers or sisters to study Scripture together. Uh, in that context, in that fellowship, with, in the Word, with one another, we, we push against falsehood and ignorance, complacency, indifference, and we, we get awakened to the full, full scope of the Christian picture. Not just the woman and the child, but also the dragon. Uh, and so we together rely on our Savior, find encouragement at the cross, we continue resisting the enemy, and finding our comfort in our, in our uh, Almighty God. Uh, finally, I want to just encourage you guys to fill your days, every day, uh, with praise, with praises. The songs that we sing here, uh, praises for your Lord and Savior. Because when you praise something sincerely from the heart, and you're not just moving your lips, when you're, when you're praising something or someone sincerely, what you're also doing at the same time is you're, you're diminishing the power of other things that compete against that. Right? So if I'm, if I'm praising a Chinese restaurant all the time, right? true story, right? The, that also means the other places that might compete against that have nothing on this particular one that, that I'm praising. Right? So what, what does it mean when you are praising the Lord? Right? You're reminding your own soul uh, nothing in your life, nothing in this world has anything on him, on the beauty of Christ, the excellence of Christ, the majesty of Christ. Um, so fill your days with praises of him. Right? Uh, listen and sing and recite the hymns that exalt Christ and him crucified. Uh, at the end of the day, we are to answer this question. Right? Choose this day on, uh, on this day whom you will serve. And for those of us who say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, uh, you are you're effectively putting out a no vacancy sign on your heart. Uh, so, so nothing can come, no idol, uh, no devil can come and be an occupant. Uh, and if you, if you realize that there has been sins in your life, that show that evidence, right? You've you've succumbed to its temptations. You've succumbed to its attacks. Come back to that question: uh, Who do I choose to serve? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that means coming back to the table, coming back to repentance, coming back to reconciliation, coming back to worship and fellowship. Uh, you're in the wilderness right now. Right? That's what that process looks like. It's not overnight perfection. Uh, It's gradual heading in the right direction until we make it home. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your sobering reminder and instruction regarding our enemy. Uh, Forgive us for being too casual with 
him with our own sins, therefore. Uh, but now, Lord, uh, help us to look, take a good look at this vision that you're showing us and show, and, and show our hearts, really, that as your people and as those who trust in, in your son, we have a great enemy. He's in the picture. Uh, and he affects, he tries to affect our lives, our hearts, our feelings. Lord, guard us. Deliver us from evil. Lord, we need you. We're helpless without you. And we thank you for promising us uh, that your power will deliver us. You will save. Uh, you will not leave us. Uh, you will not abandon us. You will not forsake us. And you will be our refuge. You will be our fortress, and you will fight for us. And we thank you that your son has. We thank you that he has claimed the victory over Satan, sin, and death through his life, death, and resurrection. In this wilderness, during this final chapter of the story, God, uh, guard us, keep us, be our shepherd. Uh, and even though we may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, may we not fear, um, but look to you who, who continue to nourish us, comfort us, and lead us. Remind us of these things as we come to the table and partake of uh, your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.